Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John. And we're going to begin a series of messages in this great foundational gospel, the gospel according to John. As we begin our study of this uh, this book, I want us to keep in mind our theme for this year, and that is affirming our foundations. Often when helping new believers begin uh, in their new life in Christ, we encourage them to uh, study the Gospel of John. Uh, often John and Romans are portions of Scripture that are printed. Uh, they're handed out uh, for reaching the lost, as well as a beginning place for new believers to really uh, become uh, established in the Word of God. It's a foundational book. And perhaps the most crucial, crucial question that any person needs to answer correctly is one that Jesus asked his disciples back in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 15, when he asked, But whom say ye that I am? And on that occasion, Peter, by divine revelation, answered in verse 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if Jesus is who the Bible portrays him to be and who he claimed to be, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then the only sensible response is to trust him as your Savior from sin and judgment and to follow him as your Lord. And if he is not who the Bible portrays him to be, then we're wasting our time. You're wasting your time being a Christian. Because if he's not who the Bible portrays him to be, you're following a fictional character. You know, sometimes people do follow fictional characters today. They get all uh, excited about some of the movies that are coming out and so forth. Well, it's a lot of fiction, but they 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 jo- they have clubs and so forth and they they dress like these. I'm talking about Star Wars, by the way. I notice no one wore your Star Wars outfit today. But you know what? You're just following a fictional character. But the Bible tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not a fictional character. He's the very Son of God. And we're going to be studying in John a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ. Who say ye that I am? That's a crucial question in life. The Apostle John was perhaps thinking of Peter's confession when he told us why he wrote his gospel in John chapter 20. Verses 30 to 31, it says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. John's not trying to persuade you to believe in some general notions about Jesus, such as, well, he was a good man, uh, he was a great teacher, uh, he was a, even a prophet of God. No, John wants you to believe specifically about Jesus as being the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the anointed one, 
who was prophesied in the Old Testament, and he wants you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which means he is God in the flesh. And the pinnacle of faith in John's gospel is when Thomas sees the risen Jesus and proclaims in chapter 20 and verse 28, My Lord and my God. And so John wants us to know that in Jesus we have the unseen God. In John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 18, he adds, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Or as Jesus tells Philip, In John 14 and verse 9, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, show us the Father? And so John wants his readers to know that who Jesus is, and he wants you to believe in him as he is. The result of believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, is that you will have life in his name. And by life, John means eternal life. And since the alternative to eternal life is eternal judgment, it is crucial that you know who Jesus is and that you put your trust in him as your Savior and your Lord. I'm going to use John's purpose for writing as kind of a framework to give an overview to this morning we're just kind of starting an introduction to this great book and i'm sure that there are thousands of pages that you could read on the book of john people have written much about this gospel and i encourage you to do that and we're probably going to be here for a while by the way Uh, you remember our study in matthew took uh, almost three years uh, I'm not sure what John's going to do to us. We might be here till Jesus comes. I don't know, which could be next week anyway. So that's <laughs> that's no big thing. <laughs> but we're going to be in John for a while. And that's kind of the, the nature of this book. You can spend a long time here and you think, well, this is kind of basic. This is kind of foundational. Yeah, it is, but there's a lot here. Many authors have mentioned uh, the Gospel of John, and it's like a pool in which both a child can wade in, but an elephant can swim in. That's, That's the nature of this book. It's both simple and profound. On one level, a child can understand and respond to John 3 and verse 16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I did when I was nine. It's exactly what I did. Just as a child, a nine-year-old boy, put put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ basically because of John 3.16. But you know, on another level, scholars have written articles and even books that grapple with some of the issues in John. So wherever you are spiritually, there is something here in the book of John. Whether you've been saved a week, two weeks, or two years, or uh, 80 years, whatever. However long you've been saved, there is something here for you. 
If you've never investigated who Jesus is and you've never put your trust in him, John writes for you that you will believe and have eternal life. If you're a new Christian, there's much in John to strengthen your faith. And if you've been a Christian for many years, there are deep pools in which you can dive into. Now notice with me, first of all, we are going to see the Gospel of John is a selective account of Jesus. A selective account. Now, why do we have four Gospels rather than just one Gospel? None of the four are what we would call biographies of Jesus. That is, in the sense of covering all of his life from birth till death, but rather they're selective and they're interpretive accounts of his person and his ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. They present basically the same view, and they're, uh, and because they have much that is similar, uh, although each has a different slant, Matthew, of course, one of the twelve, wrote primarily to the Jews, emphasizing Jesus Christ as the king of Israel. Mark, the shortest gospel, probably wrote from Rome under Peter's influence, and he emphasizes Jesus as the Son of Man who came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Luke uh, wrote the longest of the uh, uh, gospels, actually the longest book in the New Testament by volume. Uh, Luke was a physician and a co-worker uh, with the Apostle Paul. He also uh, wrote the book of Acts. And so his gospel is aimed at the Gentiles, emphasizes Jesus Christ's uh, humanity. But here in the gospel according to John, 93% original material in comparison to the other three gospels. Now, we have seen in Chapter 20, verse 30, I've already mentioned that, but John acknowledges that there were many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. John ends his gospel by stating in chapter 21, verse 15, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So John is selective. Most scholars think that he wrote the gospel sometime in the in the 80s, not the 1980s, but the 80s, okay? Uh, or maybe early 90s AD. And so he most likely knew about the other gospels, did not feel the need to duplicate what had written. But of course, God had him write what he wanted him to write, regardless of what the others had written. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So John begins in eternity. He identifies Jesus as God and creator. He omits many important things that the other gospels contain. There's no mention of his birth. That is Jesus' birth, his baptism, or his temptation. Uh, There's no list of the 12 disciples. There are no stories of Jesus casting out demons or no parables. Except maybe in chapter 10. But John tells that he saw Jesus' glory. Chapter 1, verse 14. But he doesn't mention the transfiguration, even though he was one of the three eyewitnesses. Uh, He includes Jesus' promise that he is preparing a place for us in heaven and that he's going to return for us in John chapter 14. 
But he omits Jesus' lengthy prophetic discourses. John gives us the longest and most detailed account of the events in the upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed, but he never mentions the Lord's Supper. He doesn't tell us about Jesus' agony in the garden, although from John we learn that it was Peter who whacked off Malchus's ear. And although John records the risen Jesus telling Mary to tell the disciples that he would ascend to the Father, there's no account of Jesus' ascension. Now, some of the features that you do find in the Gospel of John, you find a direct assertion that Jesus is the eternal God who created all things. He alone says that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Uh, John tells us of the first miracle of turning the water into wine. He alone includes the interviews with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. He tells of Jesus' healing of the noble's son and the lame man by the pool of Bethesda and the man born blind. John alone uh, records Jesus raising uh, Lazarus from the dead. John tells us that Jesus uh, of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and of his teaching in the upper room where he gives the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. John records the longest prayer of the Lord Jesus in chapter 17. He tells us of Thomas's doubts and of the disciples' encounter with the risen Lord on the beach in Galilee. And John carefully chose all these events and much more to give us a selective insider's portrait of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, secondly, we see the Gospel of John is not only a selective account, but it's a symbolic account of Jesus. John is full of symbolic language. It makes you stop and think about the deeper meaning of what he's saying. It doesn't mean that John bends the historical truth into fiction for the sake of of his story. Uh, What John reports actually happened. But there is often a deeper significance behind the historical events. And rather than referring to Jesus' miracles or his wonders, those are terms that the other gospel writers would use. John calls them signs. As we saw in chapter 20, verse 30, many other truly did Jesus. A sign points to something beyond itself. Now, when you've gotten to the sign, that doesn't mean you're there, right? (laughs) It might say Spooner, but you're not quite there until you get into Spooner, right? Or just because there's a sign that says so many miles to where you're traveling doesn't mean you're there yet. And so a sign gives you something beyond itself. And out of uh, uh, John wants to perceive the deeper meaning behind the behind the miracle itself, and you know, out of the uh, hundreds perhaps that he could have chosen, John picked seven signs, not counting Jesus' resurrection, the miraculous post-resurrection catch of the fish. But he talks about the changing the water into wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the lame man, the feeding of the five thousand, the walking on the water the healing of the man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. Those are the ones that he chose to give us. And in at least three of these miracles, we don't have to guess as to their significance because Jesus tells us when he fed the 5,000, Jesus proclaims, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. 
Uh, Before opening the eyes of the man born blind, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Before he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And by the way, these are three of the seven I am claims that Jesus makes in John. The others are, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then in chapter 15, I am the true vine. In each case, we need to think about the symbolism of what Jesus is saying about himself, how it relates to us. You'll find also that John uses a number of key words in this symbolic significance. John wrote, so that ye might have life through his name. Life is in Jesus, and he himself is life. And related to that concept is the concept of the new birth. When Jesus presents uh, this to Nicodemus and tells him, you must be born again. Born again. Physical life is a picture of the spiritual life that Jesus came to give those who believe in him. The opposite is that those who do not possess new life in Jesus are spiritually dead. They need Jesus' resurrection power to receive life. That's another sim- There's another symbolic picture, and it is that light and darkness. John says that the life in Jesus was the light of men. Jesus is the true light. He is the light of the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Jesus proclaimed in chapter 12, I am the, a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me shall not abide in darkness. When Judas left the upper room to betray Jesus, John was obviously reporting more than the time of the day when he says, and it was night. I think it's significant that he said, and it was night. Not just the time of the day, but the darkness that had come over. And yet, John doesn't really mention the three hours of darkness as Jesus hung on the cross. Another key symbolic word, word is the word world world occurs 80 times in John. John 1.10 states, he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. The first two uses, of course, refers to the earth and all that's in it, including the people. But the third instance carries the, the idea of sinful people who rejected Jesus. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. There are people that are under the dominion of Satan, the prince of this world. He uses that phrase a number of times. In this sense, the world hates both Jesus and his disciples. World can also refer to the people of the world in general, as John states in John 3.16, God so loved the world. Or when the Pharisees expressed their frustration, he said the world has gone after him. Jesus asked the Father not to take his followers out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from evil, adding, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. It's a number of other key words that John repeats. And he does this, I believe, for emphasis to make us think of their significance. 
He uses the word witness 21 times. All the other Gospels combined only use witness six times. He begins by saying that John the Baptist, this Gospel was, uh, was always, uh, in this Gospel, he's always simply called John, but John the Baptist came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Now there are seven witnesses to Jesus Christ in the gospel. There's the Father, there's the Christ himself, the Holy Spirit, Jesus works, the scriptures, John the Baptist, and then a variety of human witnesses like the disciples. Maybe the Samaritan woman could be included there in the multitude. These witnesses establish the truth. That's another key concept that John hammers on 25 times over against just once in Matthew and three times in Mark and Luke. And then two further concepts that have a significance, I think, due to their repetition are that Jesus uses the word sent. Sent 57 times, referring to Jesus' mission from the world to this earth by the Father to do his will at the appointed hour. There's another word, 12 times with reference to the cross, the word hour, H-O-U-R. He told the disciples, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. And to finish his work. And he's emphasizing to unbelieving Jews that the Father had sent him and that his works testified of that fact. But although these evil men refused to believe in Jesus and finally succeeded in killing him, John emphasizes it was all done in accordance with the Father's sovereign timetable. And when the hostile Jews sought to seize Jesus, they could not do so because his hour was not yet come. But as the crucifixion drew near, Jesus proclaimed, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now we could go on and on with other key concepts and words here like the flesh and spirit, love and hate, knowledge and know. But we'll comment on one other word, believe, in a moment. So we find that John is both selective and symbolic. Thirdly, you have an eyewitness account of Jesus. Again, John chapter 20 and verse 30 says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. John himself was an eyewitness to these events that he reports, plus many others whom John knew. Uh, This establishes the truth of these events. It's not surprising that liberals dispute that John wrote John. You know, that's a question by some liberal theologians. And it's not, not, uh, not, uh, not surprising. Just as they dispute whether Paul wrote many of his dep- epistles. One seminary study or student said he took a class in seminary on the authorship of John. And the professor finally concluded this, the course by saying he thought John was the author. Well, the sarcastic uh, uh, student in class said, well, I believe John wrote it before I started this class, and I believe it now, so I've wasted a whole semester. (laughs) Well, you can read many, many pages of arguments on this issue, but they would certainly be unnecessary. Suffice it to say that there is a credible internal and external evidence that John, the apostle, wrote the Gospel of John. The internal evidence refers to the many indicators in this book itself that it was written by an eyewitness. And that eyewitness was John, who refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The external evidence, of course, you could 
at would be the church so-called fathers, such as Irenaeus and Tertullian and Clement of Alexandria and so forth. These others, uh, Polycarp, uh, would, would give you evidence externally. But uh, we find here that John is, there's solid evidence that he wrote the book of John. And that's why it's called the Gospel According to John. So you knew that before, but we didn't just waste our time, I hope. Let me just finish up with one other thing about this account, and that is a believable account. A believable account of Jesus. John wants you to believe. Not just in generalities, but in specific true content. And that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that you will have eternal life in all that He is and His name. John makes it clear that the proper response to truth about Jesus is not automatic. In spite of the strong evidence, people divide over Jesus. Even after he raised Lazarus from the dead, many believed, but others went away to the Pharisees to report on what Jesus had done, and with the result is that they increased their efforts to kill him. And the raising of Lazarus clearly proved that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, but that didn't stop the Pharisees. They still wanted to kill him. Sin is not, does not make sense. Sin is not rational. Now John uses this word, this key word, believe, 52 times, but strangely he never uses the noun, for John, faith must have content that is true. You must believe certain truths about Jesus. But faith is also a personal commitment to the person of Jesus Christ, where you enter into a relationship with him. To believe in Jesus is to trust him as your savior and to walk in obedience to his commands. And we're going to see is it's possible to have a superficial belief in Jesus that does not re- result in eternal life. But for John, belief in Jesus is both initial and ongoing as a person learns more about who Jesus is. The disciples initially believed in Jesus when they first met him based on the testimony of John the Baptist, but they also believed when they saw Jesus perform his first miracle, turning the water into wine, but they and Martha still needed to believe before they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet John reports that when he went into the empty tomb and saw Jesus' grave clothes, he believed. Obviously, Thomas had believed in Jesus before the resurrection, but his faith was shaken by the resurrection. He had to see the risen Savior so that he would not be faithless but believing. And so the first crucial question is, who do you say that Jesus is? After you've answered it, the second crucial question is, have you believed in him so that you may have eternal life? If not, why not? If so, you still need to believe further in him as you get to know more about who he is. I trust you'll ask God to reveal more of Jesus to your heart as we study the gospel of John. Well, that's our introduction. You ready to go now, huh? We're ready to get into this great book, and I trust it will be a blessing. Again, as I said before, it's something that 
children can understand, but it's also something that the very scholarly can understand as well. And uh, so I hope you fit somewhere in between there. Uh, It's a foundational book, and I trust our study will be a blessing. You'll faithfully avail yourself to study it, not only here in our services, but in your private study as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.